Hi guys, this is Nick. And this is Eugene. Welcome to Papercut. We are a podcast duo that read books and discusses the grand ideas presented in them. So for this week, we'll be diving into Agatha Christie's classic, Murder on the Orient Express. So Nick, without further ado, would you want to give us a brief intro into what it's about? Okay, so Murder on the Orient Express, it's a very famous one, probably the most famous Agatha Christie novel at the moment, especially after the movie that was released a few years ago. So, in summary, the book is about a fully booked train on its way to London. On this train, 13 other passengers as well as Hercule Poirot. And something is amiss. Mr. Ratchet, an American businessman, approaches Poirot one night and warns him of blood in the air. He wants Poirot to protect him from potential dangers, but Poirot declines. The next morning, Ratchet is found stabbed to death, and it's up to Poirot to solve the case. So the book was first published in 1934 and is the 10th work from Agatha Christie featuring Hercule Poirot. Now, I haven't actually seen the movie, but I've seen its ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, a solid 61%. Not bad for a comedy, not great for a crime drama. To put things into perspective, Knives Out by Ryan Johnson that came out in 2019, a whodunit featuring a star-studded cast as well, managed to receive 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. So, there you go, it's... That's probably a fairer comparison. But anyway, we're not here to shit on the movie. We're here for the book. So, we've both read the book. So I'm just going to ask Eugene straight out. Eugene, what were your thoughts on the book? Well, it was the first um, Agatha Christie novel that I've read. So, before that, my detective novel... Yeah, they were all Sherlock Holmes. So, there was actually, like... There's, like, a difference between those two. Like, the biggest difference, I feel without fanboying too much on Sherlock Holmes is that Sherlock Holmes seems more action so like there's there seems to be more going on whereas this one is more I wouldn't say less interesting but like it's more sort of like in depth on the thought process of Poirot Poirot, (laughs) yeah I'll get it right someday yeah I feel like this book not hard to understand relatively straightforward logical processing definitely a good read if you're bored and just want something to read like um it's not too heavy it's only like what 200 pages yeah, long yeah 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 i think in terms of like sort of thoughts as well i read this after the movie came out like when the movie was becoming a thing i don't know why i didn't really want to see the movie after hearing those reviews but i've heard good things about the book and my mum loves Poirot stuff she loves Agatha Christie so it only made sense that I at least give the book a crack and I'm not gonna lie I actually couldn't put it down I I finished (laughs) that in a day or a day day or two well that's impressive I mean it's fun it was a really fun book to read it was very much every episode sorry every chapter ended with a cliffhanger and it's just good writing the story was tight the logic flowed like you said it's straightforward enough but it was a well-told story and it's just for me it was i think my first agatha christie book as well so i was impressed from that according to quite a few of my friends who follow agatha christie more apparently like murder is not their favorite 
it's, it's one of those things. Well, it's always yeah. that, you know, oh yeah, I read it, so I, I, I read every single one of her works, and like, since this one's cool, I don't like it anymore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, that's basically it, like, you know, it's, it's, it's the same with artists as well, yeah. like, everyone probably knows artists for like, this song, and they'll just say, oh, yeah, you like that song, but... So that one actually wasn't their best work. Uh, they actually had, like, a lot of different ones. Oh, you know, you should check it out. I was like, yeah, 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 I will, I will. Yeah, sure, man, sure, sure. Like, sure. And to this day, I still have only read this book. Yeah, more or less, <laughs> exactly. Like, I was actually doing some research for the book, for this podcast, and I, one of the things I was curious about was, like, were, was there any real-life parallel to this? Is, was there, like, an actual murder on maybe not the Orient Express, but something else, something similar? And I actually found that this story, apparently it's based off a real-life kidnapping. So, in the book, we all know that someone dies, all right? It's, it's in the title. If you think that's a spoiler, well, I've got some harsh news for you. But anyway... <laughs> oh, no, don't read the title. Uh, oh, no, no. <laughs> the title gave it away. <laughs> Why do you read the first word? <laughs> oh, no. Murder. Um, so, yeah, okay. You know someone dies, and you probably guess that if someone is murdered in such a fashion, stabbed to death, they're probably not very well liked in one aspect of life or another. And so it's revealed later on the book that Ratchet has actually done some awful stuff. Yeah. And the most awful thing he, that he's done is a kidnapping. In re- whilst I was researching this book, I found that there was actually a real-life kidnapping that inspired the story, okay? And the story itself is actually quite interesting as well. So the kidnapping involves Charles Lindbergh Jr. And his father was a very famous aviator. I think he flew across the Atla- the first solo flight across the Atlantic or something like that. So very famous, very yeah, important guy. I think it rings a bell. Uh, yeah. So it was him, his wife, and their child in a, ha- in a mansion. And one day, the child gets kidnapped. Okay, they were in the house in Massachusetts and the, ho- the child gets kidnapped from his room as well. When they went to his room, they found these muddy footprints. And of course, they found a ransom note as well for $50,000. Uh, this was in 1932. They found the ransom do- a note for $50,000. And eventually, it got bumped up to $70,000. And it was headline news, you know. It was a celebrity's child, right? Yeah. It was, it was so big that even Al Capone, famous gangster, was in prison at this time, offered to give money to Lindbergh and his wife to get their child back. That's how big it got. And so they managed to get the money and the kidnapper gave them a place to drop said money. So as soon as they dropped the money, the kidnapper gave them details as to where the child was. And they said that the child was on a boat by the pier. And so they went to the pier and they didn't find the child or the boat. Subsequently, they found the body of the dead Charles Lindbergh Jr., and he was less than a mile away from his house. And it's very likely that he was actually murdered stri- almost immediately after he was kidnapped. Jesus. Exactly. So quite brutal. Two years later, in 1934, they managed to find a German immigrant by the name of Bruno Hartmann. And I think they found sort of ransom money from him, the ransom money that was given to him. And they managed to match his handwriting to the handwriting on the ransom note. And eventually he was convicted as the kidnapper and the killer. Now, here's the part that also shocked me a lot. It was only after this case, they call it the Lindbergh case, where in the United States in 1932, kidnapping for the first time became a federal crime. 
That's crazy, right? So in 1932, it became a federal crime. Yeah, man. Just like, just imagine how, how much you could have theoretically gotten away with back, like, before, if you did this kind of stuff. Like, think about it. There could be a lot of kidnappings. We just didn't know them because none of them were as famous as Charles Lindbergh, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's just the tip of the iceberg, really. It's crazy as well. I mean, I, 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 quick disclaimer as well. This is a this became federal law. There were state laws and I think provincial laws as well prohibiting kidnapping. But I think it's one of those things where if you commit the crime in one state and you run to another state that doesn't have yeah this, exactly like you can't you can't be put uh, exactly, yeah. prosecuted. Interesting case and it obviously fed into this story as well. Murder on the Orient Express, and especially when it comes to Ratchet's backstory. I thought that was something really interesting to share anyway. <laughs> Another interesting part of the book that I wanted to talk about was sort of the differences between the book and the movie. Now, I didn't watch the movie, so I think, Eugene, you've watched the movie? Yeah, so I actually read the book because I wanted to watch the movie, and me being like one of the, uh, I like to read the manga before the anime guy, I wanted to read the book before I watched the movie. (laughs) So I sat down, read the book in like, well, not in one sitting, sorry, Nick, but more like a week. Alright. And, uh... And yeah, and then watch the film straight straight afterwards. So my my sort of straight off the bat thoughts about the differences between those two is that the book I feel it goes a lot more into the details of how Hercule Poirot's <laughs> <laughs> thoughts process. Poirot's thought process, right? So the book actually puts out his interviews with each of the characters it puts it out very clearly it was like one per chapter or something about that yeah Yeah. so it was very well structured in such a way that while it was semi-intensive you could still follow it sorry yeah no in a film they don't really do that that well the story i feel like it get it got dragged out at the start and the Killing, yeah, I feel like the killing happened, it could have happened a lot sooner in the film than it did, which uh, really took uh, took time away from, like, the actual juicy bit, which is the whole detective work thing. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, the entire prior, like, saying his conclusion and, like, thinking it out, it happened in five minutes. That's it? Yeah, and it was five minutes of him almost feels like reading off a script. It was like, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but he basically set out his conclusion very quickly to everyone what? in like five minutes. What? Like, you tried to, like, I tried to follow it and I couldn't, but I'm going to confess, I didn't really like the film while I was watching it. Okay. So. I think I trailed off a bit in the middle, so it might there might have been more detective work, mm. but there definitely wasn't. It wasn't as uh, engaging as the book was. The film was a bit boring. I feel overall, I'd say worth watching if you if you want to see the difference. If you want to if you want to like prove me wrong, go ahead. Um, but I will recommend the film. Recommend the book definitely. Well, that's fair enough. Like, I think your sentiments are sort of shared by a lot of people because when I was reading the reviews 
they said that some parts were dragged out like that very beginning part this is dragged out he's not even dead yet the guy there has been no there's no yeah exactly i'm like i'm like come on come on man murder on the orient express come on i just want to express his first word in the the title man (laughs) that's the thing isn't it like i think all stories film book they follow this sort of three-part structure like the first third is set up and everything and the second part is well basically the fun stuff happening all the detective work and the final part's the climax and finale and i think that in the book i found that that first so uh, that first third was about maybe 25 percent second part was about i'd say closer to 40 45 percent and the rest was uh, that finale and conclusion yeah. and i feel like in the book that's uh, right in the movie they just really changed that proportioning no, very scientific I feel like they tried to they tried to do something new and then they didn't really think about like just because you can do it doesn't mean you should oh oh okay I th- one of my theories as to why that's the case is because I think it was Johnny Depp that played Ratchet oh it? yeah that's why they really wanted to milk him <laughs> well maybe he shouldn't have cast him as Ratchet then oh yeah but then he would have cost like so much more he right cost it so much more I mean, the cast was stellar as well, like Willem Dafoe, Daisy Ridley, you know, obviously it just didn't, it just didn't fly in certain regards. I guess, like you said, they were also trying to do something new, because obviously, Murder on the Orient Express, there have been movies about it before, there were TV shows about it before, so I guess they want to differentiate themselves somehow. Mm. Mm. It's one of those things, remakes, like, especially nowadays. Uh, anyway, that's a. I feel like that's a subject for another day. Well, well, that uh, that's another vent for me. I don't. I don't really want to talk about that now. But another thing that I found quite interesting was, of course, this whole close. This is something I feel that like Agatha Christie does very well. A whodunit in a close setting. So it's basically it feels like Cluedo, and you're trying to figure out that who's done it. And I think the most appealing part about this is that as a reader, you feel like you know you feel you have your guesses okay well so what i do sometimes when i'm reading books like this is in the very beginning i have all these characters names all fleshed out i write down somewhere like okay i think this person did it for no reason i don't give any reasons for it i'm just gonna say okay i feel like this person's done it and most of the time it's mainly because their intentions are too pure or something like that like this or person like seems they're, too they're, nice. like they're written too well exactly right? they're written too too innocent to be to be innocent right yeah, yeah. exactly and at the end you're right and you're like oh yes boys when's uh <laughs> when, when when am i gonna get uh employed as a detective exactly that is exactly it <laughs> and i think that's the sort of allure to all these sort of things whereas in sherlock holmes it's quite open in that i remember reading what's the first one called no, uh, study in scarlet study in scarlet that's it and they were basically chasing this guy throughout London at one point, like trying to figure out who he was. Yeah. And it was, it was good. Don't get me wrong, but it's also it, it doesn't have that same sort of tension as a closed off room where you know that someone in there is trying to kill you or has killed someone. There's a bit of tension and the stakes are there. Whereas in the Sherlock Holmes one, it's very much sometimes like the stakes have to be pl- uh, plunged to you. It's like. Okay, if you don't catch me in this time, another person dies. Whereas in Murder on the Orient Express, it's like, if I don't solve this murder fast enough, this train's going to stop, the murder, murderer's going to leave, or worse, I'm going to die before this train reaches its stop. I guess so. You can, I guess you can say, like, um, for, for Agatha Christie, you can solve it in real time. Exactly. Whereas in Sherlock Holmes, it's more like, okay, I'm sitting back, relaxing, and I'm watching this guy do... <laughs> That's exactly. Uh, maybe that's why I like Sherlock Holmes more. It's because I don't like to. I don't like to like 
think when I read. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that's fair enough. There is like this um, manga series called like uh, Con- Detective Conan or whatever. So a lot of like the chapters are also like basically like some, some murder happens and then you solve it. And the thing is like that one, the story, because there are pictures with it. So sometimes the clues are actually are in the pictures, right? Oh, yeah. So that I feel is like a very good compromise between those two. Like it's an open setting, but you can also follow the logic within the way. Like I always find it amazing how theoretically I could have solved it if I was good enough. Because like when they solve it in the end, they go, "Oh yeah," because of this, 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 and I go back and I'm like, "Oh yeah, no, no, you're right." Like how did I not see that? So, yeah, Sherlock Holmes doesn't do that. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've read, I think I've read a fair amount of Sherlock Holmes and I never feel like I can solve the crime while the story was going on. It was more like, hey, Watson, guess what I found today? (laughs) Hey, Watson, I'm going to go out and cosplay as like someone else. I'm going to take a large bunch of like cocaine. Opium, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, opium. Opium or cocaine, yeah, he I'm gonna take a large bunch of OPM, I'm gonna play some violin, I'm gonna like do some chemistry sh. Okay, here's the difference. I feel that Agatha Christie actually liked Poirot. Yeah. She, I feel like she actually liked Poirot. Like Conan Doyle, he's tried to kill Sherlock Holmes so many times. Every time he does so, the audience, the readers want yeah. him back. And so he has to find a way to bring him back. And it's the same with the TV show. And he right just now. and he just can't he just can't be like he just can't be asked to like actually write the story while solving it at the same time right so he he probably like writes the first bit mm-hmm. and then he goes okay what's the solution to this and he just writes it at the end and like he he strings the middle like he throws the dice like one is Sherlock Holmes goes out to uh pretend as someone two is Sherlock Holmes smokes weed three is Sherlock Holmes plays the violin oh, and he goes okay let's write in different words this time <laughs> Oh, we gotta do a Sherlock Holmes episode. Like we've both done studying Scarlet. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, definitely. Future definitely. episode. Future episode. But right now, back to Murder on the Orient Express. Okay. So yeah, I guess the point I was trying to say again was just that, uh, Agatha, like Ag- Agatha Christie, definitely seems from the limited one book I've read from her slash, and then there were none which I'm like currently reading. Oh, so good. You can see. You can see how. Is is very engaged with it with the audience. Like you can feel like you're in the room with them. You can feel like you could be the next one getting murdered. Oof. You could be you could be the one who is targeted. Yeah. You could be sus- suspected, or you could be the killer. Yeah, stakes are there. I think that's the part that sort of draws me to Agatha Christie more. And I guess the final thing that sort of final thing that we can talk about is this idea of justice. All right, so. Obviously, guy gets killed, like I said, and there's a reason for it. It's almost innate, isn't it? Like, you want someone who's done something bad. You want something similar to happen to them. Sort of eye for an eye thing. And this idea, of course, is it's not like... I'm not the first one to play it out, but it's very much... Why is it wrong for me to hurt you back like that? Why is it wrong for me to go for revenge? Even though in the law it's illegal. Yeah, in the law it's illegal, but why is it okay for, like a judge and a jury to say, okay, yeah, go to jail. You know what, it's interesting, because like, you say this, and actually, with your point of kidnapping being a federal offence, only after this kidnapping happened. Yeah. Right, the Charles Lindbergh one. So actually, here, we have both a case of, 
something morally correct being judicially wrong and something morally wrong being judicially like lawful mm. here we have two very distinct cases of like the judicial system not being perfect uh either it being too it can either be too restrict well i don't want to say restrictive more like over over abiding by it could result in say your scenario where you said okay if i'm doing something because they definitely deserve it yeah is it wrong versus i did something everyone thinks is wrong but the law doesn't say it's wrong so is it wrong What do I think? Oh boy, no! I was I was gonna I was gonna raise the question, so I don't need to think. Oh god! <laughs> oh no! You you caught me out there. But um, what do I think? I think that at the end of the day, the law is written by humans. Yeah. Like constitution, even the United States Constitution got it, it got like, like it got amended so many times. Like every constitution gets amended. So obviously, I don't want to say like it's not meant to be followed, but it's not meant to be taken literally at face value. Like, like you don't take the Bible at face value. I think everyone can agree the Bible had some pretty good morals in there. But you don't follow every single law in the Bible. So I feel like it's kind of the same with laws. I mean, that's why you have the jury. Right? Judge and jury. Yeah. yeah. The judge doesn't decide... I'm, like in some cases, the judge the judge doesn't decide. I think judge can, judge makes the, the final call. The judge makes the final call. In okay, cases. so what? The, wait, what? If the jury says like, if the jury says he's not guilty, the judge can still say can he's guilty. Him, okay, yeah. okay, cool. Yeah, that's a bit where I say okay, it's not meant to be taken too literally, but also, of course, it's a good guideline for your life, like for how you should live your life. At least it's like. A good basis for what you should do, uh, what you can and can't do. Yeah. You base it on that, and then you worry about the grey areas. But I think at the end of the day, just don't be a, d- <laughs> and you're probably fine by like most books. That's true. I, I can get. I I can abide by that. Revenge is a very strong drive, and it's prevalent throughout this book. And towards the end of it, I think Poirot's basically thrown this question like. It conflicts with his morals because in previous books, from what I from what I understand, he's conflicted because he's always upheld the law. For him, law is number one. Like if you go against the law, you are inherently a bad person. And this case comes along, and it really th- it throws him sideways because it's one case where if he follows the law, it does not feel morally correct. I'm trying to say this without spoiling the book. It's very difficult. But here's <laughs> the thing, right? So he's he's thinking about it from murderous perspective yeah that's more recollect but what if like a uh, rashid uh he conducted the murder mm-hmm. oh sorry he conducted the kidnapping because he had some financial troubles of his own and therefore he needed the money yeah, i mean that- then 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 like then this becomes the oh no now i feel morally wrong to think he deserves it but then like who caused that financial trouble and then we have to go all the way back so i i can see i can see the idea behind a book although i feel like that this whole sort of um cause causality mm, right it doesn't that. doesn't doesn't really go anywhere because like a very simple example 
who started World War One? Because I actually I looked into this so much, and I still don't know who started it. <laughs> I still don't know who started it. Cause like, you have like Franz Ferdinand getting murdered. Yeah. But then like, it was and then the Austria-Hungary Empire. Yeah. Um, had like some dispute with France. Oh no, not France. Sorry, um, Germany. Right. No, no, no. Sorry. No. No, Germany had Austria-Hungary empires back yeah. when they were threatening Serbia Serbia okay and then Austria Austria uh, Hungary yeah they were like um, okay France gave us a blank check we can do whatever we want mm. not not France sorry Germany I don't know why I keep saying France some could say okay then Germany's caused it because Germany basically let uh, AX uh, Austria Hungary do what they want but then you can say, oh, wait, but Germany only did that because um, apparently, like, the Russians actually marched all the troops to the borders before the ultimatum was met. So there's this whole, there's exactly this whole um, sort of, oh, no, like, he, but he did that, but then he did that because of that, right? Yeah. So you can, you can say the same about this case where, while, like, oh, could rash it because he did this atro- atrocious crime, I can easily write a book saying for Rash's case and then, like, Oh, oh, he actually, like, he got brought up like this, and then, um, victim of circumstance, that kind of stuff. Right. But, I guess that's sort of where this whole idea of, like, justice and the law, uh, justice exactly, law and moral, yeah. moral, morality exactly. comes, comes in. Like, like, like I said, you know, Poirot sees him, sees the law as above everything, and it doesn't, like, causality to him, doesn't matter in that regard. Like, it's the action that happens that matters most. Like, so even if I was really poor and I robbed you, for example, like, yeah, my morally it seems like you should have more pity for me because I, you know, I'm so poor, blah blah blah. But in the eyes of the law, me robbing you is is the wrong thing. Exactly. Yeah. So from from Poirot's point of view, before all of this, he would have seen me robbing you as the crime, and there's no two ways about it. But with that in mind, he might look at me and go, "Okay, this guy is a victim of circumstance. Maybe I should cut him some slack." So these are, I mean, these are questions that still persist today. You know, this is not, and we're just a thirty-minute podcast. Yeah, man. Thirty-minute podcast. <laughs> we're not here to solve life's questions. We just ho- we just here to chat. Exactly. All right. I think we're drawing to a close. So I'm just going to share some memorable scenes and quotes. So. For me, one of the more memorable scenes was the part of the red kimono. And I don't know why. It's very startling. Just imagining a red kimono in the middle of the freezing in the freezing train. I don't know why. It's just very disheartening. In the middle of the night as well. You just see a figure flash across in the red kimono. And all of a sudden, like a few pages later, you find the red kimono itself. But you find out it's all a red herring. But still, like the imagery of it, I think, is what made it interesting I guess it's just so strange right it's just so strange it's so out of place exactly yeah I think for me for me it was it was one of the interrogation scenes I forgot who Pryor was interviewing but that guy basically he was giving out testimony Mm. but then the testimony was meant to cover up someone else's so he said like all the wrong stuff to try to divert Pyro's attention away. But that was exactly what Pyro picked up on. And he was like, you described exactly that person. It's opposite. And I was like, oh my god, Pyro, you genius. That's why you're in this book and not me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's true. <laughs> There's purely intellectual points, right? Uh, but yeah, that was, that was it for me. Fair enough. All right. 
I think to leave everyone off, I'm just going to share a quote that I, I really enjoyed from the book. It's a bit of a 12-year-old, uh, it's the 12-year-old in me asking for this. But essentially, it's a conversation between Poirot and Ratchet, and Ratchet asking for Poirot's help. To which Poirot replies, I'm going to try this in my French accent. If you forgive me for being personnel, I do not like your face, Mr. Ratchet. Oh, that's terrible. As <laughs> <laughs> a... Good effort, good effort. Thank you. Thank A you. for effort. E for effort. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So key takeaway, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Um, just don't be a d Just don't be a d yeah. yeah. If you don't want to get killed, probably don't want to kidnap anyone. Exactly, so. yeah. All right. Otherwise, I think I'm happy to draw it to a close right there. Thank you very much for joining us today on this episode of Paper Cut. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for joining us and uh, peace out.